When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 139th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is navigating role tension more happily. I'm joined by Yael Schoenbrunn, PhD, the author of Work, Parent, Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection When Everything Feels Like Too Much. The publisher is Shambhala. Uh, Yael is a clinical psychologist who specializes in treating relationships. She is also a co-host of the podcast Psychologist Off the Clock, an assistant professor at Brown University, and the parent of three children. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so delighted to be here. Oh, looking forward to it very much. So uh, quick overview of the book, if you don't mind. So this book is a psychology and social science-based guide for thriving in working parenthood. I think of it as a parallel to how positive psychology fits into the field of mental health. So we need, of course, to be doing work to reduce all the problems of working parenthood, most of which exist outside of us in our social policy, our workplace expectations, even in our marriages. But my book focuses more on building the positive. And part of building the positive is recognizing that some of the human discomforts that we might not like very much turn out to be quite serviceable. In other words, while some of the problems do need to be fixed, some of the ways that our roles conflict can be reinterpreted and used to our advantage. And so what I tap into is this idea of work-family enrichment. So while we mostly think about work-family conflict or conflict between roles, what social science shows is that there's a lot of various ways that our roles, even when they exist in tension with one another, actually help each other out. And so using social science and clinical psychology practices, I guide people in how to manage the tension more skillfully, but also amplify the enrichment in really significant ways. Oh, that's good. I, I remember uh, Seligman and positive psychology was kind of just getting started when I was entering the, the field and uh, was a welcome addition to the, the conversation, which very often was uh, focused on, you know, quote unquote, negative emotions, although I'd argue even negative emotions certainly can serve their constructive purposes. So um, you got 12 strategies in the book. I'm a little curious as to the book structure, um, and I'm being a bit facetious, but I know four are from the head, 
five are from the feet, uh, but the heart only gets three. Um, <laughs> so uh, how how is that? <laughs> uh, I hadn't. Nobody's ever asked me that. Um, <laughs> I think maybe it's because by the end of the book, I just think people are tired of reading all the chapters. No, I'm just kidding. Um, well, I think what the so from the head is about mindset. And so there's a lot of like specific ways that we need to sort of think about think about our thinking, right? There's like our mindset, there's the labels that we uh, adopt, there's the stories that we tell. From the feet, you know, there's a lot of behaviors that we're interested in, in enriching. So I talk about um, how to find more rest in lives that are full of lots of demanding roles, how to get more creative, how to actually how to subtract, right? A lot of books in the wellness sphere talk about like all the additional things that you should be doing, like more mindfulness. Don't forget to work out. Don't forget quality time with your kids. Don't forget to do deep work. So uh, there's an interesting science on doing less that I find really fascinating. Um, and then the final section, as you're noting, has fewer chapters in it, but I think the chapters are really rich. So I talk about how to manage stress more skillfully and how to amplify happiness in in a, two different ways. There is also an epilogue that kind of belongs to the third part. So technically it's four. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I kind of saw the epilogue as, as very much germane to to uh, part three. Yeah. So um, in terms of the book strategies, one of the things that seems a real centerpiece for you is uh, ACT, the acceptance and commitment therapy. So I want to make sure we get a chance to level set on that early in the interview. Sure. Yeah. Acceptance and commitment therapy is an evidence-based treatment. It's part of what we call a third wave treatment. So the first wave treatments were really focused, you know, the first wave scientific treatments were really focused on behavioral interventions. And the second wave were really focused on the adding the cognitive piece. And the third wave interventions add in the acceptance and mindfulness pieces. So it, there's a lot of science behind it, but it has a lot of sort of Buddhist philosophy that gets incorporated into it. Um, acceptance and commitment therapy has six core processes, and they all converge on this construct that we call psychological flexibility, that we know when people are more psychologically flexible, they tend to be healthier and happier. And when they're more psychologically inflexible, they tend to be have a higher risk for mental health problems and to be less happy. So psychological flexibility, just to start there, is defined as knowing what matters most to you and being able to move your life in directions that you care about. In other words, to stop or persist in behaviors when it matters to you to do so. So it's that ability to kind of keep going or stop doing based on what matters to you and based on what's going on in your life and based on what you care about. Okay. And the six, I can sort of uh, do a quick overview of the six core processes. They are mindfulness, which is defined as getting in contact with the present moment acceptance, which means allowing with equanimity thoughts, emotions, and experiences, even when you struggle with them. Self is context. So the awareness that our mind generates thoughts and stories, but that it's just our mind generating those stories. It's not truth with a capital T. It's just feels sure. like truth because it's inside of our head. <laughs> Diffusion, which is the process of unhooking from those thoughts and stories values, which is getting clarity on how you want to show up moment to moment in your life. And then finally, committed action, which is the activity, the behavior of moving your life in directions that matter most to you. Okay. And as I'm listening to how you describe those, I can see the, the Buddhist influence. I'm wondering if positive psychology also potentially drew on Buddhism. 
Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, this idea that, you know, pain is not optional, but suffering is, is very inherent in positive psychology. It's this idea that we don't need to sort of get so concerned about negative uh, or uncomfortable emotions or experiences, but that we can sort of allow for them and still access more positivity and be building upon positivity, even in the face of discomfort or, or, um, you know, uncomfortable thoughts, feelings, or experiences. Okay. And, and if I can explore the, uh, I guess I'll call it the architecture of happiness for a moment. Uh, you mentioned in the book, in fact, uh, spend some time on it, that the two core ingredients of happiness are meaningfulness and pleasure. Uh, I can see meaningfulness tying into values that you just discussed. I'm sure there's a lot more you can say there. I'm also curious about the dynamic between those two qualities, meaningfulness and pleasure. Yeah. So, I mean, this is an interesting area of controversy within the field of positive psychology because some researchers really distinguish between like happiness defined as pleasure. So pleasure is like, you know, you eat a delicious brownie and it tastes real good or you buy something pretty and you feel really happy or you achieve something at work and you feel a sense of satisfaction and gratification. So it's that like positive feeling. Whereas meaning is doing something that you care about that gives you a sense of purpose. So, for example, raising children is deeply meaningful, but it doesn't feel good all the time, right? You're awake in the middle of the night with a newborn and you don't feel so great. You're dealing with a toddler tantrum. You don't feel so happy. You're um, having to discipline your teenager who isn't observing the curfew that you've established. You don't feel great in that moment. But it's deeply meaningful to engage as a parent. But what a lot of... so. So those are sort of like the two ways that two of the ways that we can define happiness, meaning versus pleasure. But what some people talk about is that they're not as distinguished as you might think that often the highest happiness is when we're doing something meaningful and feeling a sense of pleasure about it. So, you know, you run a marathon and you get to the end of the marathon. You've just done something that's deeply meaningful to you and and you feel a sense of accomplishment and gratification. So they often go together. And when they do, that's sort of the highest form of happiness. And the same thing goes, you know, even if you're having a difficult moment as a parent, you can feel that sense of like, I'm doing what I really wanted to be doing and parenting this child. And so even though there is some discomfort, there's also a sense of um, satisfaction or gratification that, that sits alongside the discomfort. So I think that it is helpful to, to distinguish between the two because there are moments throughout our day, especially if we have really busy, demanding days where we feel like we're having a hard time. Like, you know, the project isn't coming along well, or you're really not connecting with your child. And there, when you very deliberately and consciously connect to a sense of purpose or meaning, like I'm doing this because it matters for what reason? Like, you know, at work, you may not have some larger why, but it might be meaningful to you to provide income to support your family or to be contributing outside of the privacy of your home or to be doing something that feels like it is, you know, your mark on the world. So that can be really meaningful. And that if you can connect to that in a moment where you're feeling really frustrated or you just want to throw your hands up and say, forget this whole thing, it can be quite helpful. And the moments of pleasure are really important to savor and to recognize that they tend to be quite fleeting because humans are wired with the, um, the, our tendency is to habituate or acclimate. So something feels really good. It's not going to feel good forever. And research shows this unequivocally that, um, you know, no matter how good we feel, it's, it's going to 
pass pretty soon. So like if you're eating something delicious and you keep eating it, it's not going to be as delicious or as satisfying, you know, a half hour after you start eating. That's just how it works. Yeah, no, I think Woody Allen said, uh, happiness makes up in height what it lacks in length, which, which would <laughs> sort of, like which would sort of <laughs> speak to that. So, so speaking of pleasure and meaningfulness for that matter, I thought it was kind of endearing that uh, you mentioned that uh, you're not averse to uh, enjoying what you called tr- trashy screen time. <laughs> and um, and that's good. It makes you more human, yeah. um, more relatable for people. Yeah, not uh, only am I not averse, I really enjoy it. <laughs> no, that, that's good. But I'm, I'm curious in your selections, because I have to think that at some level, since you're a very thoughtful person, that in t- taking pleasure in those trashy things that you choose, there's lots of options that some of them may have meaningfulness to them in terms of the selections you make. Oh, I'm Um, I'm glad that you think that. And I actually, I mean, not to pat myself on the back, but there often is, like I often, I'll watch um, trashy shows or read trashy books as a means of connecting to friends and family because um, for my work, I read a lot of pretty heavy books that people that I love are not terribly interested in. And I really like connecting with people over, over media. I think it's a lot of fun. It's sort of a lighthearted way to connect with people. So it sounds a little bit, um, I don't know, maybe it sounds a little bit artificial that I do that, but it is like a way that I connect to people. So if somebody watched a reality TV show, I'll watch it to like have that to talk about with them. So it's sort of to keep my pulse on what's going on in modern society, but also as a way of connecting to people that I love. Well, sure. As well as to your patients, I would think. Yeah, Um, for sure. I get a lot of my uh, TV recommendations from my patients, actually. (laughs) For real. That's that's actually true. (laughs) Which ones do they particularly recommend? I'm curious. And and, and why? Do you end up investigating why you think they're telling you to watch a certain show? Well, it's, so I see a lot of couples and one of the very common things that, you know, I'm always asking people, you know, what, are you, what did you do to connect this week? Um, and for a lot of people, it's like watching a Netflix show. And I always ask, oh, what did you watch? <laughs> Just so I can know what I should watch with my with my husband. I've gotten um, a lot of recommendations for Succession. And we don't have HBO, but we just realized recently that Comcast provides the first season. So we just started watching that, which um, we're only the second episode in and I haven't quite gotten enthusiastic about it, but I'm waiting because so many people have recommended it so strongly. <laughs> yeah. So you're going to hang in there a bit longer. I'll hang in see there, if, yeah. see, see if it clicks for you eventually. It's, it's maybe not trashy enough for me. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So there, there, the, the book is rich with all sorts of exercises or activities. Um, way too long for us to go into most of them here. Uh, but I was wondering if there was one or two that particularly uh, you found meaningful that you, you've applied um, you know, that really resonate for you? I mean, whatever the criteria, but maybe you could cherry pick a couple of those to uh, share with listeners. Sure. I love that question. Um, so there's a lot of really cool practices that I use in the therapy room that I share in this book that are from acceptance and commitment therapy that I just think are infinitely useful. Um, I'll share one to begin with that has to do with the uh, process that I mentioned before of diffusion, which is this practice of like unhooking from your thoughts. So we often have thoughts and they feel real true and it feels like we have to do them or we have to think that. And so 
in acceptance and commitment therapy, what we learn to do is to relate to our thoughts in more flexible ways. So you can have a thought and not buy into it, or you can have a thought and not do what the thought tells you. And so one of the exercises that I share in my book is is sort of a Simon Says exercise. So this idea that Simon Says teaches young children the power of choice in whether to trust a direction given by given by somebody with a voice of authority. So kids learn, for example, to make choices that are different, right? They At first, they may think that they have to do what their parent tells them. And soon enough, they learn that they that they really don't. And we can <laughs> practice the same yep. free will response to directions that our own minds give us by using the sort of Simon Says exercise. So for example, say to yourself, make a fist with your hand and then do the opposite. Open your mouth and then do the opposite. Raise your shoulders, do the opposite. And you can note that you can think these thoughts and then choose to do the exact opposite action. And that's because thoughts don't dictate or predestine action or inaction. And that to me is a really core tenet of acceptance and commitment therapy that I think is really, really important. And it's particularly important when you notice that thoughts are kind of guiding you in ways that don't feel consistent with how you want to show up in the world. And so the second exercise that I'll share is um, is one of values clarification. This is sort of the other, um, one of my favorite exercises because values sort of define like how you most want to show up moment to moment in a given role, in a, in a given context. And for a lot of us, we, we don't give it much thought. But when we have given it much thought, when we've clarified for ourselves what, what is our most preferred way of showing up, then we have a really, really useful compass. And so some of the questions that I use in the therapy room and that I share in the book that help people to clarify their values are things like consider a difficult patch of life. What are you most proud of having done or having stood for? And how would you most want to handle it next time? What are ways that you'd like your children, if you have children, to see or remember you? Or if you don't have children, how are, how would you want your friends or your family to see or remember you? Yeah, no, those are good. Um, and then the, the last values clarification question that I really enjoy is travel forward 30 years and imagine your older self looking back on your current self, looking back, what are ways of being that would have made you most proud? Okay. So when you were mentioning the the, the Simon Says, um, I was noticing, you know, with the mouth and the fist and so forth, it's, it's quite sensory. And there's a couple of points in the book where you um, kind of align almost the the, the bring in senses or in one case, align them with emotions. And, and this is what I'm referring to. Uh, you mentioned that when you're in hospice regarding your, your father, and I'm sorry about his passing, uh, that you mentioned that hearing is the last of our senses to leave us, which I, I found really intriguing. I've never read that before. And you also mentioned that negative emotions uh, can literally narrow your field of vision. Mm. And um, so I, I'm intrigued by that interplay or the roles that the sensory plays because, you know, we, as you mentioned earlier, we, we think that we are on top of our thoughts, but they don't dictate our actions. Uh, but our, our senses and our emotions are at play <laughs> in what happens as well. And I'm wondering what you might be able to say on that front. Yeah, well, I think you're pointing to something that is so true, but like the way that our thoughts and our feelings interact really forms our experience and it is so complex. And so I, to me, I think what you're pointing to is like how 
malleable our experiences, like what we pay attention to or how our emotions are guiding our focus and whether or not we can sort of zoom out and see the full picture, whether we're really zooming in and only seeing one thing really impacts how we experience a given situation. Um, And it's not predetermined. Like we can have an influence over it, particularly if we have the awareness and the knowledge base that can help us guide how we want, and this kind of gets back to values, how we most want to experience something. So, you know, if you are feeling afraid or overwhelmed and your attention gets really narrow, if you can recognize that that fear isn't fear of some imminent danger, it's just, you know, a response to feeling kind of overwhelmed and that you'll actually be more effective if you can zoom out. There are exercises that you can do to kind of force yourself to zoom out and force is probably not the right word, but to encourage yourself to zoom out a little bit in order to be more effective. And one is just a mindset shift to say like, okay, I'm stressed out, but stress is really useful because it helps me to be energetic and to be focused and to uh, be motivated. And even that mindset shift of like stress is bad to stress can be quite useful. Laboratory research shows can help us to be more effective in a given role, even if the role is a pretty demanding, stressful one. So would you say that fear is the is the negative emotion that most narrows our field of vision as opposed to, say, anger or disgust or yeah. contempt, for instance? Uh, you know, I don't actually know what disgust does to our attention, but anger certainly narrows our attention and, and certainly fear does as well. Okay. Well, those are both kind of on a control dimension in a way. Yeah, yeah. So that, that that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, maybe just one last question before we, we end here. Um, you bring up uh, David Charnack's term emotional gridlock, and it's kind of in the same part of the book where you're talking about learned helplessness. And I, I know that some people trying to move forward, trying to, as you say, uh, induce themselves to zoom out and maybe get to the better picture. That's one of the things they have to kind of overcome. It's kind of an emotional uh, you know, barrier for them at times. Um, what, what do you, how, how does one approach trying to, I guess, basically overturn learned helplessness? How do you unlearn learned helplessness? Yeah, well, I, I try very hard in the book and, and when I'm meeting with people to just be very validating. Like if you feel that sense of learned helplessness, no matter, you know, it's sort of this internal thing that we tell ourselves, like no matter what I do, I can never get anywhere. This can never get better. You probably arrived there, you know, for very good reason. Um, sure. And and certainly some people have more challenges than others. So I'm not trying to suggest that learned helplessness is something you're manufacturing to get out of doing oh, no. the work. Yeah. No, I didn't um, take it that way. Yeah, yeah. No, I just wanted to clarify that. Um, but there are ways to build in a little bit more optimism. And one of the reasons that learned helplessness is something to try to uh build from is that when we feel the sense of learned helplessness, we feel like no matter what we do, we can't get anywhere different. And so we don't bother to try. And what what we know is that when we don't bother to try, then we sort of really put the nail in the coffin. We really aren't going to get anywhere. So, you know, the example that uh, people often talk about in, is like fixed mindset. Like if you think that you're bad at math and you have a learned helplessness about it, you're not going to try to uh, 
get a different teacher or do practice or find some fun or find a colleague who, who can help you out or a, an academic peer who can help you out. And so you really won't get better. Whereas if you have this sense of, no, I think this is really hard, but there probably are some ways that I could get better, then you might do all of those things and, and you might and likely will see some progress. And so one of the things to start with is to think small and find some small area of, of mastery. And for people who are, I mean, I, you know, this book is about role tension. So I think, you know, if you think there's no way around role conflict and there's no opportunity for there to be uh, enrichment at all, you know, try to find something really small. Try to find a way that your uh, demands have made you more resilient or more uh, creative or a better problem solver or more caring or more empathic because now you really get what it's like to be in this position. And the smaller you can make the uh, identified win, the better, because what you want is to give yourself some evidence that there is a reason to feel optimistic, but to do it in a realistic way. Um, and again, if you've had a life where you've just got whacked around a lot, you might really have to look for the small wins in order to build to bigger ones. Sure. But, you, you know, small gains to get to some momentum and some proof that you can believe in and that will survive self-scrutiny. No, exactly. makes, yeah, makes sense well to me. So I want to thank you, Yale, so much for being my, my guest. This has been episode 139, Navigating Role Tension More Happily. Uh, she is the author of Work Parent Thrive, 12 Science-Backed Strategies to Ditch Guilt, Manage Overwhelm, and Grow Connection. If you've enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. In this case, I filched one from Henry Ward Beecher, who said, We never know the love of a parent till we become parents ourselves. Until next time, take care and be well. Mm-hmm.